Thank you so much, team. Uh, I, th I think it goes without saying that our, our next-gen department, led by Lest and Sivus, is just in good hands. Uh, Lest, I never told you the story, so I'm going to just tell you the story and everyone's here, because I've got the mic and I can do that. Um, I was watching a, a podcast this week, a reel came up, and it's, uh, it's, it's youth ministry uh, veterans. And they had been asking about, what is your biggest fail in youth ministry? And the thread was hilarious. Because um, youth ministry is interesting, um, but I really do uh, value that we have such confidence in those who lead on next gen. Because a guy told a story saying when he was young in youth ministry, he was speaking at a camp similar to a conference like us and it gets to the big climax moment of where you're going to have the gospel presentation but he had a plan because from day one of the uh, camp he brought along with him a baby goat and he let everyone kind of look after the goat throughout the whole week. James is laughing because he knows where it's going to go and when it got to the big night with big gospel good news of Jesus what did he do in front of a crowd of high school students? He slaughtered the goat. Biggest fail. It was hilarious and sad all at the same time. I am so encouraged that our next gen ministry is in strong hands who can present the good news and not scar uh, high school students, but actually we celebrate all that God did over the weekend. Um, it, it has been amazing. I love that we get to start this brand new series. And uh, if you haven't missed it, uh, it's called On Purpose. And it's a look at the life and impact of David. Here at City, we will talk about how important it is for us that we believe every single person has a next step. And so we see steps that uh, God gives us through His Word in how we can grow in uh, looking more and more like Jesus, being built up in Jesus. And one of those steps is the step of purpose. And so this series is really going to help us in taking that step because David is one of the most significant characters in all of Scripture. He's mentioned throughout scripture more than a thousand times, more than Moses, more than Elijah. David is a big deal because God had a purpose in David's life and his ultimate rule, not just in setting him up as leader and ruler and king over God's chosen people, Israel in the Old Testament, but setting up his kingly line because in his kingly line, in his royal line would come the plan of salvation, Jesus the king who would save us. And so his significant run of purpose uh, was set by God, set in motion by God. But as we get to know David more and more, what we find is as he, had, as he was purposed by God, very often his personal passions, desires, and the waywardness of those passions could butt up against God's purpose for him. And so in this series, what we want you to know is that each one of you have a purpose directly given by God to you. God doesn't just have the answer to the question, who are you? He has the answer to the question, why are you here? Why are you on the planet? He wants you to know that you can walk this thing out in purpose. But if we're going to walk out a godly purpose, it means accompanying it has to be godly passion. And so how do we align and balance these two things, passion and purpose? This is what this series is going to be all about. And so I want to talk about passion and purpose just for a moment on the front end. Because I think the world has worked this out, that there is a deep, deep connection between passion and purpose. Human heart, a human heart, when it feels like it is walking out a life of purpose, a life of impact, feeling like it's leaving a legacy which we all desire... And a key ingredient in the mix is a feeling of being passionate and a passion within you for the purpose that you're walking out. But here's where the world sometimes gets it wrong. Here's where we sometimes get it wrong. 
The worldly view of passion is that it is simply based on feeling. When I am passionate, it means I am feeling strongly about something. I want you to know godly passion doesn't end there. It takes it a step further because of where it is based. Godly passion isn't based on something as fickle, as variable, as open to change as human feelings. Just like Sivu gave us the encouragement in worship. It doesn't base in these things that can change in a moment. Godly passion is actually based in the heart of God. And so that means if we have the heart of God in us, we will feel deeply as we walk it out. But it is not based in our feeling that could change, it is based in the heart of God that is never changing. And so it means when our passion is godly, what he feels, we will feel. What he cares about, we will care about. And as we seek his purpose, he will align our passions to that. And so for four weeks, we're gonna be looking at the life of David. And we're gonna look at four different moments in David's life where we see him get, a, uh, get purpose right and wrong and where we see him get passion right and wrong. And so today, as we kick it off, we're gonna look at probably one of his most famous moments. But it's a moment where he gets purpose right, but passion wrong. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and it's the famous story of of David and Goliath. If you've been in church at all for any length of time, I am sure you have heard a preach on David and Goliath. It doesn't matter if you're inside of church or outside of church, it's probably one of the most well-known stories in all of scripture. We find it in references to in media and movies and other things. We see it in references even in sports. You have the David and Goliath matchup. We see it happen in the World Cup right now. We know it's there, it is a famous story, but I hope whether you've heard about it outside of church or inside of church, that today you will put aside anything you might have heard and think, you know what, maybe God's gonna show us something new. Because we're gonna look at this story through the lens of passion and purpose. It starts out like this, in verse one of 1 Samuel 17. It says, now the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Succa. Yes, there was a place called that, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succa and Azekah in Eves Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up an in line of battle against the Philistines. And the, <coughs> don't cough halfway. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. I know before I preach to our hearts, I need to preach to our eyes. I want to take you to the Valley of Elah. And to do that, I want to put up a picture of what this place looks like. Because I think sometimes we read about these things in Scripture and we forget they were real places. And that's is what it looked like. Because maybe the thought in your head is not this. It is a green space. You have this famous, this is actually from uh, the hillside of Azekah looking over uh, into the valley of Elah. And so you have this riverbed that's running right down the middle and it runs and turns a corner and comes through. Around that corner, that is the valley of Elah. And in that valley is where David and Goliath will happen. That's where the battle will go down. On the far side, what you're gonna find is the Philistine camp, that furthest hill. And on the hill just in front of us there, you will see the place where the Israelites were encamped. Here's a map to give you a bit more of a picture kind of topographically. Um, It looks like this. The Valley of Elah, there's that corner. We were looking from Azekah, looking across. And so on the one side, you have the Israelite camp. And on the other side, you have the Philistine camp. And down in this valley, in this dry riverbed, 
where five stones would be picked up by a little boy that would kill a giant, you have the Valley of Elah. And this is where we find ourselves. And out of the camp of the Philistines, this is what happens in verse 4. And there came out of, from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. And for the next few verses, Scripture is going to actually describe in vivid detail who Goliath was and what he looked like. It tells us that he was more than nine feet tall, a giant behemoth of a man who was armored up, a soldier, a warrior who had been a warrior from his youth. It actually tells us that his, uh, his armor weighed more than 50 kilos alone. He had a sword, he had a spear, and the tip of his spear alone weighed seven and a half kilos. I want you to know, like an Olympic men's shot put weighs seven and a half kilos. And he would throw that thing around like a little dart as if it was nothing. He was a behemoth of a man. The giant Goliath comes out into the valley of Elah and everyone is frightened. He does this in verse eight. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. What? I feel like he has to have a Goliath voice, but I don't have it. So just go with me, imagine. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And verse 11, so important because it gets very specific. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Sometimes we get to a verse in scripture and we forget this, that God is so intentional in how he's giving us his word that no detail can be left as not important. And so in verse 11, when it says not just all Israel, but even Saul is dismayed and afraid, we need to know that's important. But the reason we know it's important is because you need to know what happened in the first 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, because it sets the scene for why this verse is significant. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel had no king. Saul would be the first king in Israel. Israel had no king. They were led at that time by Samuel, who was a priest. He was representing them to God because Israel was set up as a theocracy. God is our king. But as Israel always does, and we do the same, it chooses to go its own way. It chooses its desires, sometimes good things, but it puts it over God. And so looking at the nations around, the nation of Israel says, we want a king so that we're like the other nations. And God knows that he has now been rejected as Israel's king. And he relents and he gives them the king that they choose. And they choose a man named Saul. And scripture tells us that he was too a giant of a man. That he was a great warrior. That he was handsome and his physical prowess was obvious to everyone. It says he, he was head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. And God says, cool, Saul will be the first king of Israel. And things go well for a while. We even see in, Israel, in chapter 9, Saul actually leads Israel in a great defeat of the Philistines. The same enemy that they're facing in the Valley of Elah, they had faced before. And by Saul and God's blessing upon Israel, we find they have great victory. 
Saul even, it says in scripture that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He would prophesy and he would lead the people well. God would bless them. But when it gets to chapter 15 and 16, something changes because Saul walks a road of disobedience. He doesn't follow God. He doesn't listen to God. And because of his disobedience, God will reject him as king. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, it tells us that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In other places, it actually says that the spirit had left Saul. And the saddest thing is he didn't even know. Sometimes we can walk a road of such disobedience, be so caught up in our own stuff that we don't even realize that God has left the building. Saul is rejected as king. And so the question is, why for so many verses and the back front end of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, does scripture want us to know in detail the appearance of the giant Goliath? I think it's because what has been set up in the first 16 chapters of this book is that Israel had been so focused on external appearance. They had chosen a man to lead them and it was based on external appearance. And something will change in chapter 17 because God says, look at this man who has external appearance that brings fear to you, but I want you to know that this is where I step in and save that this is where I step in and I change the narrative and I turn things around because what God will remind them is that he does not judge based on external appearance, he judges based on the heart. He says, this is where your choice has led you, but I want you to know my choice takes you to a different place. When Goliath stands out and he calls out the nation of Israel and he says to the, the Israel's army, I am your I am the best that the Philistines have to offer. We don't need to line up for battle. We don't need thousands to die today. Send me your best. I am their biggest. Send me your biggest. For 40 days, he would step out evening and morning, and he would call out for their best. And for 40 days, no one moved. But I want you to know the Israelite army, every single time he did, as they were scared and in fear, they would look to the side to their king because they did have the biggest and best, but he didn't move. Goliath wasn't calling out Israel, he was calling out their king. Because man judges on external, experience, external appearance. And they did it and they chose their biggest and best to be their king. But Saul is afraid and he doesn't move. He is greatly feared, in great fear, and he is dismayed. Enter David into the equation. David at this time probably would have been in his teenage years. And we find from David that his dad, Jesse, uh, grew up and lived in Bethlehem. David is the eighth son of Jesse. So he is the youngest, the, the runt of the litter. When it came to kind of ancient culture, he would be the last to get married. He would be the last down the line in inheritance. No one really cared. He was just the small, ruddy little runt that would be out watching the sheep. And we find out that Jesse, who is now back in Bethlehem, has sent his three eldest sons to go be in the army and fight the Philistines. And for 40 days, as a dad, he hasn't heard any update about the battle. And for a dad in that time, when your eldest son is there, when your eldest three sons are there, you get worried because in them is your legacy, your inheritance, and all that your house was. And so when you're not hearing news, you want to find out. And so he grabs what he has available to him, something that was 
he could lose. Get the youngest son. Go take your brother some food. Find out how the battle is going. Because I need an update. I haven't heard anything in 40 days. When David arrives on the scene, Goliath is out in the valley of Elah. And he's calling Israel out. Then it says this in verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. He will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Saul was so desperate in his fear that he actually now will offer reward to anyone who steps up and kills Goliath for him. And you can imagine the the progression of desperation. He starts out with what he has first. He says, the man who kills this giant, I will make rich money. No one takes it. Morning, evening, Goliath comes out again and again and again. He says, right, let's up the ante. You won't just be made rich. I'll also give you my daughter's hand in marriage. You get to marry the princess, marry into the royal household. You will get status and power and all that comes along with that. No takers. Upset one more time, he says, all right, you won't just get rich. You won't just marry the princess. I will also make it available to you and your family forever that you're tax-free. Who would want that deal? Take down any giant right now. Let's go for it. I don't need SARS coming for me. David enters the scene and he hears of the reward for the man who kills Goliath. And immediately his passion is ignited. Look what he says. 26. David said to the men who stood by him. So he's heard about the reward, but watch what happens. He stood by him. Just asking again. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. I want you to know this is the first words in scripture of King David. God's king, chosen king over Israel, who Jesus would literally be in the royal line of. The very first words he has in scripture is what do I get as a reward? You want to see wrong passion? Start right here. What do I get? I get chicks and money. That's my first start. That's my interest. That's what I want to ask about first. Second thing he'll ask is, but what about God who's being dishonored by this Philistine? He understood that there was purpose in God, that we honor God first. But don't get it twisted. He had some skew passion. And if you know anything about the rest of David's life, these two things would be at war with each other. These two things would actually color the highlights and the lowlights of his life. It continues. It says in verse 28, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now if you don't know, in the, in the previous chapter, uh, Samuel had been down, he, uh, he has now known that uh, Saul has been rejected as king. And God says, I need you to stand up. We're going to go anoint the new king. Because I let Israel choose their king, but now I will choose mine. And he sends Samuel out to Jesse in Bethlehem. And he says, go to the house of Jesse, because one of his sons will be our king. And when Samuel arrives, the first person he sees is Eliab, Jesse's oldest son. 
And it's said of Eliab in scripture that he was a mountain of a man, that he was handsome. And Samuel's first thought is, there's our king. He looked to outward appearance. God says, that's not how I judge. My judgment is not how man judges. My judgment is perfect because I see the heart. And he says, he's not the king. Second born's not the king. Third's not the Seventh born is not the king. Now there's no one left. And he asks Jesse, do you not have any other sons? And he says, yeah, we've got David, but he's just but a boy. He's the runt of the litter. He's, not, he's just out in the field somewhere, should we call him? And he calls him. And what is presented to Samuel is a young boy who scripture says is not handsome, who has no physical prowess. And God says, I see his heart, that's our king. And so I can imagine Eliab remembers this moment where he was passed over for the baby brother. And his anger is kindled against David. And look what he says. He says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Only a brother can take a dig like that. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. He judges the heart of David, and yet that's the same heart that God says, that is a man after my own heart. That's the man I choose to be king over Israel. That's the man I will play in the line of my redemption of all humanity. There's evil in your heart. It's not what God says. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. First interaction, first scene where David, where we get to hear him speak. Three times he will ask about the reward that the man receives for killing Goliath. One time he will question, how, what are we doing about the honor of God that is being dishonored here on this field? The order goes, what do I get? What about God's honor? What do I get? Last time, just checking, what do I get if I do this? He understood great purpose, godly purpose, but mixed into it was wrong passion. Now the good news is this. If David's passion was woman and money, which would mark the rest of his life, and godly purpose, which would honor God, what we find played out in his life is that he would honor God, he would lead Israel, he would lead them into great victories, he would worship God, but simultaneously he would also struggle with skewed mixed agendas where he would go after woman and lust and money and adultery and sin. And the good news is that just like David, who is a flawed human being with a heart that can be wayward, that in the purpose of God, God can use him. That where we go astray, where we are misaligned in our passion, God can pull it back into alignment and still use us in his purpose. God can still use us as he slays a giant. First Samuel 13, 14. God speaks of David's heart. It says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The heart that is sought after by God is the heart that prioritizes the honor of God. As flawed as David was, he got this right in the battle. He got this right across his whole life because it was deep in his heart that God should be honored and that must be prioritized. If we can prioritize honoring God, he can work with our wayward passions. He can address those. 
See, because I think when we look at David and Goliath and as we've heard it taught or preached on or as we've seen it in other forms of media, the story that we have been told is that David is the hero. What I hope you know today is that David is not the hero of David and Goliath, only God is. David is not the hero, God is. And so the question for us is, well, do we have a heart like David? Do we have a heart that's gonna care about the things that God cares about? Do we have a heart that's gonna feel the way that God feels? Do we have a heart that says, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna forget this because when I forget this, that's when I'll fall into sin and failure and error. But the beautiful picture is even in my waywardness, God can still use it for his glory. And as he inquires after the reward, the king, Saul, hears, someone is questioning Someone is asking, someone is interested. And he calls David before him. And this is what he says in verse 33. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when they came a lion or a bear and they took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and, kills, and killed him. Saul, very obviously, with his eyes that are looking to the external, doubts David's ability. He doubts that David is qualified or equipped to face the giant Goliath in the field. Rightly so, when we're looking through those eyes. He says, you're a shepherd boy, you're not a soldier. Never, that is a true statement, but what David comes back with in his response is, my king, I am a shepherd boy, but what you don't know is that being a shepherd means I have protected my flock from enemies that you know nothing about. That I am the one who has actually delivered my flock from the mouth of a lion and the mouth of a bear, that actually at my hands, a bear has been killed and a lion has been killed. He says, you know nothing of my experience or skill or qualification because you don't understand where I have come from. And he continues, because he doesn't just end there and say, oh, look at me. He says in verse 36, your servant has struck down both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He doesn't look at the past victory and say, look at what I did. He says, look at the past victory and the faithfulness of God. That's what I trust in now. See, because when David is aligning his passion and purpose now, what he has is a knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God he has is a knowledge that no one else seems to have. Because everyone else is looking to the external where he has understood that it's a heart issue. Everyone else is saying, this is the way the world works. He's saying, but you don't know the way God works. Everyone looks to the size of Goliath and, say, and he says, that doesn't matter. Everyone looks to the size of David and he says, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is God's purpose because he has defied the living God. And if he has defied the living God, God's purpose will prevail. David boasts not in his own strength, not in his own wisdom, not in his own knowledge. He simply boasts in the knowledge of God that he has, in how God has prepared him and walked with him. At his heart, he knew God is in control. 
In shepherding, David knew the faithfulness of the living God. And for everyone to see, that faithfulness would now be shown in the Valley of Elah. And this is the truth what I, I, that I don't want us to miss. That God, what God will teach us on the hillside when we are alone, he will reveal in public in the battle to come. That what God does in his preparation, he will fulfill in the midst of the battle. Because he understood that there was faithfulness of God then and so there will be faithfulness of God now. And Saul's reply is simple, because how do you argue against the knowledge of God? You say, go and Godspeed. But then comes up the question, now that I can't argue against knowledge of God, let me, let me get into something that I think I can control. Because there's a battle and a fight coming and so let's talk about armor and weapons. Because Saul yet again will mistake this. He says, you are fighting a soldier, so therefore you must look like a soldier. And so Saul calls for his own armor to be put on David, calls for his sword and puts it in David's hand. And David says, I'm gonna put this off because this is not a matter of war, this is a matter of God. And so I'm not gonna go into a battle with armor and weapons that are not mine or given by God. And so he takes off the army, he takes off the weapons, he heads down into the valley, dry riverbed, and he picks out five stones and he takes his shepherd's sling. He says, these are the weapons that God has given me. Now a shepherd's sling had two purposes. It had a purpose in protection. Those stones could fly at like 200 k's an hour. One shot kills the Goliath. And a good shepherd had good aim. But the other thing it would do is also help in crowd control. If you're moving sheep from one place to another, sheep are dumb, they go their own way. And so as some sheep would kind of get wayward, maybe go up a hill or go up a path that you didn't want them to, as a shepherd, a good one, you could aim, hit the, hit the kind of uh, floor in front of them, they're dumb sheep, they get scared, they get back in line. And so he knew what he was doing. He picks his sling and these five stones. And he says, what you don't know is that the weapons I have are far greater than the armor you think you have. Because the battles that have been fought and won in, public with, in private with God will now be shown in public. And so the challenge for us is will we be faithful in private with God? Will we be faithful in what we do now because we know we're sowing seeds now for what God will do later? I want you to know when you see the faithfulness of God in the past, it is sowing seeds and setting the table for future victory. That's what we see in David's life. David picks up his weapons, slinging five stones. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why does he pick up five stones? Because spoiler alert, it only takes one. And maybe he only needed to do no one in a spare, but by that time, if you've missed twice, Goliath's got you, you're done. Scripture does actually give us the answer. And this is completely like the most sidebar truth, but it's so cool. At the end of David's life in 2 Samuel 21, we hear that Goliath had, uh, had family. We hear that there was more than just one giant that came from Gath. There was actually five. It says in uh, 2 Samuel 21, verse 22, these four, outside of Goliath, these four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So what we know is that he picks out five stones from the riverbed, that in 1 Samuel 17, the first giant will fall 
And by the end of David's life, the other four will. David picks up his weapon. But for a moment, can you just imagine what it was like to be the Israelite army? And you suddenly see Goliath as he has done 40 days, calling out and cursing the nation of Israel and the army, and you're all scared and in fear. And then out pops a little boy with a sling and some stones, a shepherd boy, and he's walking out to the giant. I'm sure there's a moment where they're looking around and saying, like, can someone get his mom? Like, is he lost? Like, what is, what is happening here? And you imagine the moment of realization for some of them, hey, is this the champion we're sending? For 40 days, this guy has called us out and we're not sending our biggest or our best, we're sending that. And if he fails, if he loses, we're all slaves. I'm sure they understood the fear of God in that moment because this isn't gonna end well. Yesterday, uh, I, I preached in the last session of City Youth Conference 2023. And I preached a message talking about the confidence we get from the gospel. That it's a confidence that is outside of us because it's based in the power of God. David walked out on that field down into the valley of Elah with a confidence that no one knew anything about because it was a confidence that he didn't well up within himself. It was a confidence in the power of God. He didn't go out with weapons that were placed in his hand by someone else. They were placed in his hand by God alone. The Israelites then look at this moment as he approaches Goliath. And with that confidence, David will actually speak to the giant. And he says this in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. The confidence. I think it's such an important point whenever we get to this part of the story. It's often taught and it's rightly taught and I don't know who needs to hear this, this is just adjacent, that when you face sin or an enemy to your salvation, you make sure that thing is dead, you cut off its head. And so if you're battling against sin and you feel like you've, you've landed a, a killer blow, make sure you cut off the head. You don't leave it breathing in the field because it will come back to haunt you. You cut it off. You make sure it's dead, never coming back because that's what's gonna happen to Goliath. He continues and says, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the, this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Everyone, the Israelites, Saul, Goliath, everyone is, is judging, hey, let's compare size. David says, let's compare weapons because he says, my Lord doesn't save by sword and spear because that's what you're bringing to the battle. David says, my weapon beats yours because the weapon I have isn't even a sling and a stone. The weapon I have is the power of God. The weapon I have is a flawed man walking out in God's purpose. That actually the living God has been dishonored and the living God will answer. And so my weapon beats your weapon. You can come with size, you can come with sword, you can come with shield. You can call out anyone you want, but understand you've called out the living God. And so the weapon I bring will be your defeat. Here's where I want to wrap up as the band joins me. I hope you haven't missed that there is this truth in 1 Samuel 17. 
that as much as he was walking in God's purpose for him, David's passions rode up against it. And that is true of us. There will be moments where God is calling you to a purpose, but your passions, your desires are riding up against that. They're wayward, they're skew. Can I tell you? In the moment of the battle, if we prioritize honoring God, he can use our skewed passions and emotions and he can realign them to the purpose he has for us. There's a couple of questions I think we should ask going into this week. Question number one is, am I honoring God daily? Is the honor of God my focus daily? Because if we're prioritizing that, God can work with any wayward passion or, or, or wayward emotion we have. Second question we should be asking is, when we look to past victory, do we look at it as our victory or God's? Do we look at it as, a, 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 as God's faithfulness to us? Because every single time David spoke of the lion or the bear or the past victory, he says, hey, God delivered me from the paw of the lion. God delivered me from the paw of the bear. It is God's faithfulness in the past that how has set me in the present. And the future victory is based on that table that was set in him. The last question we should be asking is, do we know that we serve a living God? And I know that sounds obvious, but actually ask yourself that question. Because I think if we truly know that we serve a living God, living, I wonder what it would do in changing how we walk this thing out. I wonder what it would do and how we change walking out passion and purpose. I wonder what it would do to our prayer life. I wonder what it would do to our devotional life. I wonder what it would do in how we pursue God in relationship, in deep intimacy with him, if he is living and active and he's seeking and pursuing you. Final thing I wanna say. David is not the hero. God is. Jesus is the hero of this story. Because Jesus is set up, even in the purpose of David, the, pur- the purpose that God had for David is a setup for the ultimate hero, the one who would bring salvation, not just to Israel, but the entire world. Stand with me and we're gonna pray. Jesus, you are such a firm foundation because we understand that we can look to David as an example, but he is merely a signpost to the true hero. That David is a setter for the ultimate hero that we have in Jesus. That the victory you won in the Valley of Elah is a victory that set up the victory on Calvary that is available to all of us. And so Lord, it's my prayer right now that as we position ourselves in the midst of the story of David and Goliath, we would know David's not the hero, but as we place ourselves in the story, we would place ourselves in the Israelite army's perspective because they would live in light of the victory of David. And in the same way, we get to live in light of the victory of Jesus. And that changes everything. Because if Jesus has brought victory. If we wanna share in the victory of Jesus, it means Jesus must be king. We don't hold that row. Lord, we are not the hero. We are not the king. We don't put Saul on the throne. We only put Jesus on the throne. 
Jesus is the one who is king over all. Jesus is the one who is king over our passions and our purpose. And so Lord, would you help us again ensure that you are king over all and you are king over us. Because if you are king, Lord, you can readjust. You can realign our passions and our purpose to you. Jesus, it is all about you. We trust in you. We put our faith in you. You are gracious and merciful. And in you, we find victory. In you, we find freedom. In you, we find the giant lying dead with his head cut off. There is no enemy that can step to you. And so we know that you are the faithful one. Lord, we give you honor as the faithful one. Jesus, you are the hero. We worship you. Let's sing to Jesus.